Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike touring, get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, and learn the pros and cons of certain gear, bikes, and bike setups. I hope you enjoy this podcast and that my guest stories fill your journeys with hours of listening. If you're new to the bike touring scene and considering going on a tour, I hope this podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. In the meantime, enjoy the show. In this episode of Bike Tour Adventures, I speak with George Beasley, bike tour adventurer and fellow podcast host. With a start in finance and most likely a cushy job paying good money, George decided to go on an adventure. And what better way to do that than fly to the top of Alaska and start cycling south? Since that time, he's started a podcast, which has been revamped into a business as well. I hope you enjoy this. George, welcome to Bike Tour Adventures. Thanks very much. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's interesting huh? to have you on the flip side of uh, a podcast. It is. Yeah, it's uh, it's very different. I, know, I, I was trying to think which one is easier before, but I, th- I think uh probably they they can be both as complex as each other right uh, a a really good host you you speak less um but mm-hmm. uh you kind of guide the interview more so uh yeah it's uh it's it's fun to be in the hot seat tell us about yourself i mean who is george beasley and uh, uh all that? well yeah i think uh, you you gave a little bit of an intro there so um kind of yeah after uni i fell into a job in finance um not through any kind of uh, thoughtful process of thinking like, oh, I really want to go and work in finance. But um, it was not that long after the recession. I'd studied economics and uh, business and politics Mm -hmm. at uni. And so it was kind of a natural fit. And everyone either became a management consultant or worked in finance. And yeah, I just kind of fell into a job and and I felt lucky to have a job. So I stayed there for a few years and it was a it was a really good company, met lots of great people, lots of very smart people. And um, generally it was uh, for a professional job. I think it was one of the ones that suited me best and it was, okay. and it was a great opportunity. But um, yeah, after a few years in, I kind of thought I don't really know why I'm doing this job specifically. I hadn't really given it the the time to get some perspective on it and really thought and really thought is this what I want to do with my life Mm -hmm. and uh 
And so, yeah, I think after I'd stayed and done some exams so that I was qualified and I felt like that was my insurance policy. If I ever wanted to go and do something a bit more risky, adventurous and exciting, then I could always come back and get a job. So put the hours in. What year was this around? around? Like, well, this, this part of your life? This was not too long ago. So I left in May 2017 um, and I was there for about four years before that. Oh, okay. And that were you working in London or...? Yeah, yeah, working okay. in London. So I'm from the countryside, from a fairly small town, and then went to uni in uh, Manchester, which was great fun, brilliant party city. Um, did an exchange over to Australia, which was super cool and a good change from the the rainy skies of Manchester. Uh, and then yeah, came back and got a job in the city. So it was it was fun to be in the city. And uh, when you're younger, I think you always really want to get out of your hometown. And you always think it's so boring. There's not much to do in the countryside. And yeah. then you go and live in a city and you get older and you think, oh, I would love to be back in the countryside again. That's it. I mean, I spent, uh, I guess, about 15 years living abroad and almost always in big cities, you know, multi millions of people. And mm. and now I live in a town north of the capital of Ottawa that I don't, I don't know. There's not much here. There's maybe 10,000 people and yeah. it's right on the edge of a national park and it's perfect, you know, like just love it. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Where, where we're at now, uh, we've been here for a few weeks in, um, it's a small Island off the Southeast coast of Sweden called Erland. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we just live on the edge of a forest in a little cabin and, if you didn't like the outdoors, this would probably be the worst place in the world to live. But uh, we're both pretty into it. And I I love it. Like the, the fact that I can wake up in the morning and before I start mm-hmm. work, just take 30 steps and get into the forest yeah. and um, have a little walk for half an hour. Always go down to the sea. It's um, yeah, right next to the ocean. So it's um, it's really, really good. I think if you're into this kind of thing for quality of life, it's just uh, it's made a massive difference. Mm-hmm. So what, what, what brought you to Holland and uh, as opposed to staying uh, in Great yeah, Britain? Yeah, well, my my girlfriend's Swedish. Okay. Um, so she's from about three hours away from here. And she'd come over to London and we'd lived together there. And uh, she was not particularly drawn to it as a city, but just there because I was there. Mm-hmm. So um, then, yeah, then we went away, did our bike tour, and then we came back. And she's studying a, a kind of sustainability and um, civil action course over here. And I have my kind of business that I can do remotely. So we thought, well, let's come over to Erland and, and give it a go. I mean, I got we got separated for about seven months for lockdown. And so mm-hmm. I was stuck in the UK and she was here and it was kind of good in some ways because launching a business, you just need to put in a crazy amount of time and really, really long hours, much longer than I put in in finance, even though that's notoriously hard work. Right. But uh, yeah, in some ways it was it was neat, necessary, but uh, nice to be out here now for sure. Mm-hmm. And where does where is she from in Sweden? She's from a place called Aarhus uh, uh-huh. on the yeah. on the south coast near near Denmark. Yeah, yeah. Well, I lived I lived in Hesleholm for a while, so just an hour oh, north cool. of um of Malmo. Oh yeah, yeah, you know it. Yeah. So she's like an hour from Malmo but over to the east. Yeah, yeah, nice. Beautiful area. What what were you up to there? I was teaching. I was working at an international school there for a year. Then um I mean I could have stayed longer and in many ways I regret not staying longer because Sweden was pretty awesome, but I was dealing with some finance issues, debt and stuff. And Sweden is mm. definitely not the place to, to pay off debt. 
<laughs> yeah, not known for being one of those super cheap countries yeah, to live in. So I went back to Southeast Asia and sorted it all out. Very cool. So in 2017 is when you you decided to to drop all that and to to go on the bike tour. Yeah, yeah, May 2017. So um, kind of shortly before not that long before my dad had had a stroke and uh, yeah, he's fine now, but that kind of gave me the um, epiphany or catalyst to like really assess what, um, what I was doing with my life. And uh, mm-hmm. I'd started the, we need more heroes podcast as it was called then. And I was always talking to these people that were doing what I thought was kind of amazing adventures and always telling their stories. And uh, yeah, I just kind of had the the realization that I should go and make my own stories instead of always telling other people's and getting so excited about that, I should really go and experience it for myself. And um, a friend of mine, Henry Bryden, he'd cycled from London to Sydney. And I just thought that was awesome. Um, But I couldn't do the same trip that he'd done. So we thought, what's another really long bike trip that's kind of cross-continental and Mm multi-year, different languages. And so uh, Alaska to Argentina was the plan. Okay, cool. And um, had you always been into cycling prior to this or was this kind of all a new thing being thrown together? Oh, no, this was very much trial by fire. This was um, I'd never really been into biking. Um, I kind of like uh, ridden my bike as a kid, you know, just um, around with all of the other kids and Mm -hmm. always enjoyed that kind of sense of freedom. But I was certainly not a cyclist or a biker. I used to cycle in for my commute to work, which was like nine miles through central London. Um, But that was like as much as I'd done. And uh, I think I just a bike tour is a really accessible adventure um, where you don't need any skills like mountaineering or mm-hmm. um, say rock climbing or something. And it's easy to do it for a long time um, and to get away on a trip. So the fact that it didn't require many skills, I'd heard amazing trips of other people doing it and it was kind of traveling, which I'd really enjoyed doing before, but just um, in a much more adventurous way uh, using the bike. So yeah, yeah we, um, we, we, ordered some bikes and uh they ended up coming pretty late so i think they came two days before we left Uh, we didn't do any training and yeah (laughs) my girlfriend's certainly not a cyclist either and uh yeah so it was very much very much trial by fire okay and what's her name just so i don't say the girlfriend throughout the whole podcast uh her name her proper name is agata but um i call her kubi so she's uh she's yeah she's kubi to everyone in england i think that's how she's been introduced so yeah we'll go go with kubi kubi how do you spell kubi k-u-b-i okay as it sounds okay and was it hard to convince her to go on a bike tour like that um, not really. I mean, she was just dead set keen on getting out of London. Um, and, uh, it's, it's kind of a, a city that revolves around the professional world, um, or certainly where we were as, uh, living and my life. So, um, and that's not really her jams. She's much mm-hmm. more into kind of traveling and free spirited and, uh, and environmental things. So it was a little bit at odds with her. So I just said, oh, um, look, we've, we've kind of spent all this time here and, uh, I've sacrificed a lot of free time doing these exams and, and this has been great, but let's, let's get away and let's have a, have a trip and an adventure. And she said, yeah, sounds amazing. And then I said, oh, what about biking from Alaska to Panama okay. or Alaska to Argentina? And she was just kind of, um, a bit taken aback and just kind of thought, well, I, this, we haven't, neither of us have done any 
bike touring before so maybe we should just do a little one and then i was just saying oh all these people on my podcast just say you just gotta go and take it day by day so uh she was just like yeah okay let's let, let's let's do it she was um in hook line and sinker but uh it definitely wasn't an easy start i mm-hmm. think it could have been a lot smoother with a few little trial trips a bit like um adam hugill i know that you had him on your podcast he he recommended and did himself and uh, said that things were a lot smoother. Yeah, he's been on the podcast, I don't know, five or six, five times maybe now. Um, two with regards to his actual tour and then a few times as just the uh, like the advice co-hosting. Yeah. Kind of like he did. Yeah, good dude. Really fun. Yeah, he's a good man. Love Adam. He's always good fun. We were supposed to do a, a bikepacking trip in the Lake District uh, a few weeks ago. And there's a very hardcore one that's only, I think, three days. And it's not very far at all in terms of distance. But uh, a lot of hiker bike, very steep. And then um, they bought in the quarantine rules um, oh, right. for yeah, I heard. the UK. So, uh, yeah, I came back from France. I've been on a climbing trip there. And then I got back and I couldn't go. So I was gutted. But we're gonna we're definitely going to do that one sometime soon. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I really want to go visit. It's going to be amazing. One of these. Uh, yeah. You should come over. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll all do, we'll all do some bikepacking and that would and be legendary. Life. I'll bring my, uh, yeah. getting an adventure dog. So I'll have to bring the dog. Oh, awesome. What are you, what are you going to go for? I'm getting a Australian cattle dog next week. Oh, cool. That's kind of like, yeah, yeah. So I've, I've seen those. Yeah. It's they're a, like they're a, a herder dog. dog. Yeah, exactly. They're a small, medium sized uh, herding dog. Super energetic, super tough, you know? Yeah, so. and that that will be a good buddy to have along on long rides. Yeah, looking forward to that one. Um, so, what are your? Uh, actually, I'm sorry, I wanted to ask you. Um, I lost my train of thought. Uh, what are your thoughts yeah, on no adventure and bike travel? Um, well, I think adventure is. Um, I kind of, in some ways, I was I was going to say something that sounded way too melodramatic. I was going to say built my life around it. And I, I think that sounds a little bit over the top, but I would say really <laughs> embraced the idea of adventure and um, started to live it more. And um, I think one of the big lessons from from our trip was that was was everything that goes around with the power of adventure. So um, it's it's amazing for snapping you out of the the kind of everyday grind where when I was in the city, every day would kind of blend into one another because mm-hmm. you're not really doing that much different stuff. And it's more about kind of being on autopilot um, because life is very similar. You go to the same four walls, you meet the same few people. Whereas adventure is so different, you every day is by nature very different. You're in a, a, a different scene. You're encountering kind of different challenges, different people. You're meeting people with from different walks of life, and everyone has a very different story. And so, um, yeah, we were. I was trying to have a look at look back through some photos to uh, kind of jog my memory about everything that happened on our trip. Yeah. And uh, we, we, were, we were both going through them, and I was just thinking like. God, we did so much stuff. And uh, I think we'd, we'd looked at photos for 45 minutes and we'd done less than six months or something. And these were just like the highlight <laughs> ones. And nice. you realize, whereas compared to like, you know, three or four years in finance, I could probably have uh, had a, half an hour's worth of photos tops for that. So I think it's it's brilliant for making you, yeah, get off autopilot and really engaging, being present with whatever's going on in your life. Uh, which I think is, yeah, one of the major benefits. I mean, another big part of it is the 
the the kind of physical and mental health side, I felt so good. I'd done so much sitting when I was doing these long hours and I was also uh, in finance and also working in a startup as well. So I was just basically sitting for like 16, 17 hours a day. And uh, and then to go, and I'd had all these problems with my back and my hips, okay. and then to go biking um, and just be moving around. I mean, obviously, we were sitting down for a, a long time, but you're getting off, walking around, squatting, building fires, swimming through rivers, uh, jumping over trees. And my body just felt so good after three months, obviously doing a lot of exercise, pedaling a lot as well. And then the the mental health side, just to spend that much time outside, uh, I really, really loved that. That was probably one of the the biggest things that I took away, the power of spending time in green and open spaces. And, uh, it's amazing, always isn't it? Ma- yeah, yeah. Regardless of how busy you are in the rest of your life, just uh, a little bit of time outside is just so unbelievably valuable. So now when even when I have fairly long hours, if I've got a really, really busy week, I still try to make sure that if I'm uh, going to do some kind of outdoor exercise, that I try and do it outside. So even if I feel like, oh, I'd love to go climbing, um, if there's only right. climbing indoors, I'll try and go for a swim or, or go for a bike ride and just do something so that you get those the time in, uh, the time in nature. And I, f- I feel like that keeps me on a very even keel. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. And the, okay, I guess the the last big um, the kind of learning about bike trips and adventure was the environmental side. So um, we're obviously facing a big uh, planetary crisis right now, um, not just global warming, but also the biodiversity and uh, soil acidification um, or sorry, I should say, uh, ocean acidification and soil erosion. And um, yeah, so we've got giant problems on our plate. And uh, we've had the information for many years that this is happening. And we've had scientists reaching out and kind of ringing the alarm bells. But so it it wasn't the lack of information that didn't make us act. It was um, that we did. I, I don't believe that we kind of had a good enough reason to feel like we needed to make a change um, on a kind of personal level, societal level and corporate level. And uh, I knew these things were happening when I was, you know, working my normal job before, but it never really um, occurred to me that I needed to make change. And then after spending all this time out, seeing some of the, uh, seeing kind of firsthand depleted fish stocks when we were around Baja or um glacial retreat in uh in alaska and 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 all that kind of stuff and developing such a kind of love for the outdoors and for nature i think one of the biggest things that i came back with was this urgency and um deepened love for nature and the need to do something about it which Mm -hmm. is kind of what um call to adventure is all about so uh so yeah i i think that's probably the my my takeaways from from adventure and and bike travel now to play the devil's advocate here and and i'm not saying i don't agree with you i mean i try to be as environmentally conscious as i can as a as a bike tour um, and an outdoorsy person as well but when countries like china and india with their unquant you can't even count the amount of plastic waste and stuff that happens in every single day or hour do you think that it makes much difference what we do like one person in North America? Yeah, well, that's that's a really interesting point. I was having a chat about this earlier today, actually. And oh, um, there, there, was, there was a paper um, that somebody had sent to uh, my girlfriend about how individuals 
account for a very small part of the the, the kind of pie towards global warming mm-hmm. and uh, and all the other challenges. Um, but I think that's not really the the way to look at it. So obviously, one person we kind of look at individuals, corporates, and government, right? Right. And if you take individuals by themselves, then yes, it doesn't really matter what you do. If I go and buy a big diesel car that's five liters and drive it round, and I fly around the world um, and don't carbon offset, then that doesn't really have that much of an impact in a in a world of seven billion people. But um, I think the way to look at it is that if everybody makes a change, which is what we're trying to do on the kind of individual level, then you have um, millions or billions of people changing their behavior. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, in the UK, when they um, put a tax on or or they start to charge for plastic bags. So if one person had stopped um, using plastic bags, then obviously it doesn't make a difference. But if the whole country starts to do that, and then other countries do too, then uh, that's when the kind of cumulative change really adds up. So yeah, just one person doing something doesn't make a difference. But the point is that if lots of people on an individual basis do something, then it does have kind of a giant change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess that's the hope is like by you making that change and your girlfriend making that change and then you influence your family and they make the change and then from there it can start to compound, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. It's kind of like that that pebble spreading and spreading exponentially. It's kind of like the corona R rate. If you can keep the the spreading of positivity and environmentalism above one, so each person that finds out about it um, – kind of infects at least one more person with this uh, this enthusiasm for environmentalism and sustainability, then, uh, then it should spread exponentially. Yeah, good point. And I think you guys are, I mean, Europeans in general are very lucky in the terms of uh, minimizing that, you know, like you said about flying and taking planes and the, the carbon footprint. You know, North Americans, oh, I mean, Canada, we have a great country to bike tour in, but if you want to go hit up other cultures, you got to go pretty far, you know? <laughs> Mm, yeah, yeah, that that's definitely one of the pros. That's something that we talked about a lot. So I was thinking that um, we might we might move to Canada when we uh, before we did our bike talks. I thought I want to go and live somewhere new. And mm. uh, Canada was kind of like um, had all of the great stuff about America at the United States, but without a lot of the craziness and the gun laws and the, yeah. all, all, all that kind of stuff. So uh, for us, it was much more palatable. But um, yeah, uh, uh, and whilst I absolutely loved Canada, it was just incredible. The outdoors and the nature and the wilderness is something that we we just don't have that here. Like when we went on our, um, on our canoe trip through mm-hmm. the Yukon <clears throat> to get eight days paddle away from the nearest town and truly be in wilderness is a very different feeling than you have going out where I live in the hills of Shropshire. Um, it's just not wild at all. We don't really have any wilderness yet. So, uh, and any wilderness left. So it's, it, it's something magical and really incredible about North America and, and especially Canada and Alaska. But, um, like you say, it did make me really appreciate the fact that it's so easy for us to go to another country and see another culture and try different food and meet different people and have all of that, um, eclectic group mm-hmm. of thought and culture and uh so that's something that i i do really appreciate about living in europe yeah yeah i guess you have to balance the pros and cons of each one so mm. let's talk about the bike tour you said that you didn't get your bikes until two days before your tour and i think i i heard you mention when you were speaking with adam that you had a partial sponsor on them and that's part of the reason why 
Yeah, yeah, we did. So we had uh, so cross bikes. Um, they're a Polish brand, uh, but they make some really good bikes, actually. So, yeah, if people are looking for something new and a little bit different, uh, fair, pretty reasonably priced, then I definitely recommend looking into them. We had two cross bike pure trails and um, yeah, so hard tails. Uh, steel framed Reynolds 853. So really good bikes, kind of bomb proof, very good for touring, a little bit heavier than like a lot of modern mountain bikes mm-hmm. or a lot heavier. But um, if they break in the middle of the jungle in Panama, then you know that somebody's going to be able to weld it together. Whereas if you've got, you know, That's carbon right. fiber or aluminium, then um, you're going to have a bit of trouble in your makeshift workshop in the, in the, in the middle of a mountainous village. So yeah, they were, they were ideal bikes. And I don't think we had one mechanical problem for the whole journey uh, of whatever it was, something like 14,000 kilometers, which was really lucky because neither of us know anything about bikes or fixing bikes. So, um, and still to this day, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd, I'd planned. So the strategy was, um, I'd got this DVD called, um, like ultimate bike maintenance or something. And I'd saved it to my hard drive and put it in Google cloud oh, okay. uh, on Google drive. And then the plan was when things break, we were just going to watch the relevant video and then learn it and then fix it. And then we were going to learn bike maintenance like that, but um, we, we never needed it. Uh, so, so that was great. Oh, fantastic. And why did you choose to go with a, uh, uh, like a mountain hardtail, a mountain hardtail mountain bike? Uh, because we wanted to do as much of it off road as possible. Um, so yeah, we, the, the kind of big appeal was, uh, of, of the bike trip was to get off the roads into the wild, um, yeah, experience new cultures, but also to try and, um, do some kind of very, very remote, uh, biking and remote traveling that we hadn't really done before. So the Great Divide mountain bike route was uh, was on my list of things that I re- w- that I really wanted to mm-hmm. do, and the Baja sure. Divide as well. And uh, yeah, cycling on a road in Latin America that's full of potholes and uh, lots of driver like eighteen wheelers, and uh, it's kind of loud and smelly and dangerous. Um, it it's certainly i mean there's there's a lot of beautiful road cycling as well like the the cassia highway that we did up in north america was beautiful isn't it yeah incredible i just rode it this summer awesome yeah 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 it was i guess you did you see many bears um 34 wow there you go (laughs) there's the number uh yeah, it's. Uh, I think it has a nickname, something about how many bears you see there. I don't think we saw that many, but we certainly saw a lot. And I remember like four or five in a day wasn't mm-hmm. um, massively uncommon. So, uh, but you're, I'm sure, much more used to it. Uh, whereas for us, it was like shit your pants time. Yeah, the, uh, the guy I was with, he, uh, he was a little bit more taken aback. I'm like, oh, look at the bear. And he's like, don't, don't make attention. Don't, don't call to it. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm like, but they were um, all black bears. I was, you know, I, I, in some ways, I wish I would have saw a grizzly, but in other ways, I wish I wouldn't have, and I'm quite happy I didn't, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think we felt much the same. I'm uh, quite into photography, so I really wanted for us to see some bears. And there's that kind of, um, yeah, two sides of you. One side thinks, oh, it'd be amazing to see a grizzly bear in real life, and then the other side thinks. Um, I'm not sure I'd actually be so happy when uh, when I did, but we we had a, a fairly close encounter with a grizzly on our um, on our canoe trip. 
So yeah, my I'd injured my knee, so I couldn't cycle anywhere, and um, we didn't want to just kind of sit at somebody's house or yeah. in the campground. So we decided to take this canoe trip from uh, I think it was from Whitehorse to Dawson, maybe the other way around. I can't okay, really so kind of going north up to uh, towards Dawson City. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, that, yeah, that's the one. So we we rented this canoe and neither of us had really done any canoeing before, but it seemed like a really good adventure. And uh, yeah, we were yeah just just kind of paddling along and had had all of this food in the big in this giant barrel and uh, set off from the town. And then I think after the first day, we like pulled over, pretty hungry after a long day's paddling, and uh, most of our food was in cans, um, like canned fish mm-hmm. and uh so we jumped out and then i said to my girlfriend i was like okay where's where, where did you put the can opener and then she was just kind of like oh shit i knew i forgot something so <laughs> we didn't have a can opener and half of our food in cans um and i did find an act on the way actually so uh uh i i just thought oh well i'll just i'll just bash it open and an axe is truly terrible at opening a can uh i was just whacking this thing and um getting just covered in all this fish juice oh, that's and uh, I, ca- I came back and i destroyed this can i mean we got it open and managed to have some tuna for dinner but uh yeah we were both a little bit on edge about the grizzlies around there and uh and i just remember my girlfriend just saying like we lying in bed and she was just like you stink of fish and I was just thinking I I'm just caked in a bear's favorite food and then you're not supposed to use soap to wash it off are you because the soap smells as well and the water was absolutely freezing so I just uh washed my face didn't really um do anything for the smell and uh and and that that night was okay we didn't have any close mm-hmm. encounters like the the next day i just got out and there were some giant footprints um some kind of paw prints from from a bear who'd been nearby because you camp on these little islands and i was always like uh just kind of putting my foot over them and putting the sand back so my girlfriend couldn't see because she was she was even more scared than i was and uh and yeah we'd, we'd seen a few uh, kind of a distance but nothing too scary and then one day we were, it was l- lunchtime, paddling down the river, pulled over. I needed to take a number two. So, um, yeah, pu- pulled over. And then um, I just walked off about 50 feet or whatever behind a rock. Um, girlfriend was eating eating lunch. And um, uh, I was looking looking over to the other side of the, of the river, other side of the Yukon. And there, all these bushes were just kind of like moving from left to right, just like boof. And I was thinking, wow, I really hope that's a giant elk or something because uh, that <laughs> moose, big, whatever it is. Yeah, because it is enormous, whatever's coming through there. And I was I was mid doing my business as well. I was like, this is the worst timing uh, if I have to run anywhere. And it was, it was on the other side of the river. And then it poked its head out of these bushes and it was just a giant grizzly head. And it was huge, so much bigger than I anticipated. Uh, and I was just really dumbfounded and shocked. Like it didn't feel real at all because I was like, there's no way there's a grizzly bear right there. Um, so I just kind of jumped up, started jumping around, um, coming back towards the boat. And I was like, Kubi, there's a, a giant grizzly bear there. And it's looking at us and looked over and it's starting to get in the water. And then she was like, oh, holy shit. So I'm still trying to like pull my trousers up. And she's just like, just fuck your trousers. Just, just, just jump in the boat. So jumped in the boat, start pulling the the boat out, and um, 
she's paddling and i and i'm just thinking like this is going to make the most incredible photo ever i'm so close to a grizzly bear so i start getting my camera out and uh f- kind of messing around with the settings trying to get the focus right and <laughs> and she's just like george the grizzly bear is coming towards our boat right now put your camera down and start paddling and she was like this this is real and i was like uh yeah oh shit i guess that is a real grizzly bear so kind of had that moment of realization and i uh, picked up the paddle and just started paddling and the the bear was coming at us fairly slowly and just kind of put, uh, parked itself in the middle of the river went back on its on its back legs and just looked at us and decided that it wasn't worth it mm-hmm. even for the smell of cheetos or whatever it was so uh that was a very interesting experience like certainly something that i'll never forget and that you couldn't have in Europe. Yeah, and it's um, it probably wouldn't take very much for a bear to flip a canoe or a grizzly, especially you know. So like, oh yeah, yeah, the power it's just scary. And there, there, there are these weird things that people say, um, these kind of folklore about what bears can't do. Like bears aren't good at running downhill, and then you find out that they're, they're great at running downhill. <laughs> bears aren't good at climbing trees; they're incredible at climbing trees. There's an trees. amazing, like an amazing video of a grizzly bear chasing a black bear up a tree, and they said like they go up that tree faster than you can run straight on flat land. You know? Like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that. That sounds that sounds. I yeah, just like it is, and. um they, they are they are just killing machines, aren't they? They are highly adapted hunters and um, so so strong. Mm-hmm. Just pull you apart. Did you see that video recently about uh, there was? It, I think it was a mountain lion, and there was a hiker being stalked by a, uh, this mountain lion for about five minutes, and he kept on nearly getting away and getting around the corner, and then it would just sprint after him. Did you see that one? No, I've never saw it. Yeah, that one was that one was bad. We went down this rabbit hole of watching all these bear maulings and things, and that was just terrible for the night's sleep. But we were just like, well, we want to know what we're up against. And then there was a, I, I saw it before. There was a headline that said, "Local man mauled to death by bear." And, and there's and there's a picture of us like holding this paper up, just thinking, "Shit, what we're we doing here?" Well, the, there was that guy, the the grizzly grizzly man or whatever they call him, who you know, would go and he would swim with the grizzly bears in Alaska and stuff. And he'd been doing this for like 30 years or something. And finally him and his woman got killed. Yeah. And they say that they probably what happened, their their only guess is that what happened was, is she happened to be having her period at that time. And the bear came and attacked her and he tried to defend her and they just both got killed. Yeah, it's uh, it's a great mm. documentary. It's uh, Werner Herzog. It's a really, really good film. In some ways, mm. it's kind of like a dark comedy, and uh, much deeper than that. He's this this um, estranged from society type figure, isn't he? And yeah. uh, and then he finds this solace in what he believes is protecting these bears, but they're already in a park and nobody's poaching them. But he's kind of convinced himself that he's doing this work to protect them. And then, uh, and then you you kind of know that it's coming for the whole film, right? You're like, this sucks, yeah, exactly. this is going to end badly, uh, and and then it does, and then you just hear the audio, don't you, at the end with him being um, kind of torn apart. It's it's pretty brutal, but mm-hmm. yeah, those things are no joke, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so let's jump to the start of your tour. You flew to Alaska. Did you guys fly to Dead Horse to start there, or did you start somewhere else? We flew to Anchorage. Okay, from Anchorage. Eh? Did you bike north, yeah. or you just that was like the start point, and you were going to start going south from there? That was that was the start point, and mm-hmm. then we were thinking, oh, should we do the whole dip the tires in the sea at the north, and then dip the tires at the sea in the south? And um, 
and we didn't actually plan to do that. We were just going to go to, uh, I can't remember. I think it was around McKinley. There's, there's a famous, um, like four or five day bikepacking route around there that we wanted to do. Okay. And then, yeah, I got two days into the trip and then, um, ended up in hospital with, uh, inflamed knees cause I hadn't done any training and I'd had some old injuries from tie boxing. Okay. And, uh, so yeah, it wasn't wasn't a great start. We wanted to do shorter days, but there wasn't really anywhere good to uh, camp. Mm-hmm. So we had too, way too much weight on our bike. Um, fortunately, when we'd we'd actually met Lael Wilcox, she worked in the bike shop that we pulled into to go and build Hi. our bikes up when we when we uh, arrived there. And uh, that was a real blessing in disguise because we had all of this stuff with us that we didn't need that, you know, like newbie cycle tourists, yeah. very wet behind the ears have and had like a solar shower. And she was just like, guys, what what are you doing here? Like you're what, a bike tour. What not- are you carrying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she was great. Actually, we got all of our stuff out of our bags and just put it on the floor. And she basically just went, no, 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 maybe no, no, no. And, uh, and helped us get rid of a, a lot of the stuff because, um, so before you even started, you'd already actually gone basically what, what it might've taken you months of experience to realize you had somebody just say, no, you don't need it. Don't take it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, I, th- I think that was a, that was a real help because it's tempting to bring everything. And mm-hmm. you do see some people after some people love that type of touring, right? They, they like bring everything with them and they've been on the road for like four or five years and they have two front panniers two back panniers and then a giant bag over the the rear wheel and that's just how they roll like they've got we met a great dutch couple and they had everything they were like uh in their 60s and they were like no we 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 just liked traveling comfort so they had camping chairs and like an electric grater well, I don't know if they actually had that, but they had, you know, pretty much everything with them. What what's your what's your kind of style now? What do you go for? Um, recently much, much lighter. So this summer I was on uh with a bike packing setup and it was pretty minimal. I think when I was on the Cassiar Highway was when I was the heaviest I would have been because I had an extra food bag. Mm. Um probably bike, everything included, um, including the bike, maybe thirty kilos. Yeah, so, so that's that, that's that's pretty good, pretty light. Yeah, and that was with that was with five days of food and full water bottles, like three full bottles. I think sometimes I even had an extra bottle with me, you know. So that was it was pretty intense. Um, usually, yeah. I'd probably be down around the 25, 24 kilos mark, something like that. That that makes a big difference, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Like the food and the water just accounts for so much weight. I remember on the Baja Divide, the longest. Uh, stretch that you have on that or that that we had i think we did a slightly different route but it was something like three days and we had four liters a day of water each that's for drinking and cooking and everything so that's an extra 12 liters which is 12 kilos and that makes a huge difference and our tires were pretty thin they were like 1.75 and uh and so yeah just carrying that cycling through sand was brutal it was it was really really hard and then all the other stuff for a 18 month bike trip that you've got with you as yeah well. exactly and yeah no i know some people um a couple of guests i've had one is dan ride with dan usa and i think ari huger bruga and they have like nearly 200 kilos or not 200 kilos 200 pounds wow 200 pounds mm-hmm. that's i think i think, that? I think one I'm, was 185 one was 175 and 
that might have went up. I know that uh, Dan had built a he, he built based off somebody else's design a camper to pull behind his bike that would hold his gear and then he could sleep in it. Wow. Which, you know, on the same note, just saved his life because he got hit by a truck about three days ago uh, that was going 120 kilometers an hour, 70 miles an hour. And um, it, I think it absorbed a lot of the impact before he got smashed. And he's not looking great. I saw some pictures. I think I just posted on my Instagram as well today. But broken tailbone, some messed up knees, but otherwise relatively good. Wow. I mean, obviously very unlucky to get hit by, at all. but um, Kind of everybody's came, worst nightmare, right? Yeah. Yeah. Came out of it a lot better than you'd expect with something that heavy hitting you that fast, though. Well, mm-hmm. uh, wish him a speedy recovery. But yeah, that was um, that was certainly something that made us even more glad that we spent most of it off road exactly, uh, yeah. hearing stories of people. There's um, a guy in Mexico whose uh, girlfriend uh, got killed and hit by a lorry and uh, he was staying at Casa de las Ciclistas mm-hmm. where we were. And you just think like it's, um, it is, it is kind of dangerous, especially in developing countries where there's more people driving without a license or under the influence. Mm-hmm. And obviously it can happen anywhere, but the, and not people not sticking to the speed limits. And it makes it very real yeah. when you actually meet someone and you think like, holy shit, like your, your partner died. Yeah. And with regards to lorries, you know, in Canada, USA, they have pretty, pretty strict laws on how many hours you can drive a day and whatnot, where you mm. go to Mexico, there's maybe not the same laws. The person drives 18, 24, 30 hours straight, taking some yeah. kind of uppers to keep going, you know, and just not, not the same controls. That That's exactly it. Yeah. We met this one guy and um, he just kind of pulled over and we were having a chat with him and he was saying that they get a bonus if they do kind of five days driving in four because they want to move the cargo around quicker up and down Baja. So, uh, and he was saying, so yeah, we drive for like 19 hours a day. And I was just saying, how do you do that? And they, they take diet pills and then, um, they try and stay awake. So they make you very, very sleepy Mm -hmm. at first. But then if you stay awake, then you get really, really wired and they can't eat. So they just drink whilst they have these. Otherwise the effect, uh, gets knocked off. But he was just saying, like, it's really, really dangerous, you guys, being on the road here. Like, most people, a lot of the lorry drivers are doing this, and they, it's kind of like driving a little bit drunk. Like, mm-hmm. that's that, that's their level of awareness. So, uh, yeah, can be can be very, very sketchy. It's uh, certainly something to to look out for. Okay. Let's jump back to Alaska. You, were, uh, you said you injured your knees a bit just from uh, pushing too hard. Do you think it was preventable just with a bit more prep? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Uh, I think if we'd have done it properly, uh, and, and taken a bit more time, I think I could have built up the load on the bike instead of going to a fully loaded bike and Mm -hmm. also started doing, you know, just like 20 Ks with a, with a loaded bike and then, um, building that up through the week. And then, you know, going up to 30, 40, instead of starting with a 70 K day with everything, right. Because that's how far you've got to go to get to the next stop and doing that for two days in Mm -hmm. a row. Um, and I think a big part of it was that I didn't know how important it was to have your bike set up correctly because I was a a noob. So, um, I didn't know that there was even such a thing as like a bike fitting. I don't think I'd even heard of that. I thought like people who were racing competitively did that, but I didn't realize how important it is to have your saddle at the right height. So I was cycling with mine 
pretty much like all the way down uh, because it hadn't really mattered before because I'd never really cycled that far. So your legs weren't extending straight enough and then your your legs were never getting that chance to, to relax the knee. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, there's another really important thing. I don't know that I would say recommend go and have a bike fitting if it's if it's working for you then uh then that's fine but if you're having trouble then it can make a big difference yeah. i ended up going really deep into the rabbit hole and doing the whole plumb line from the knee and uh watching a lot of youtube videos and uh and it made a big difference hmm. interesting yeah i've never done one but i I've, I've been riding for quite a lot of years now and i don't know there's been times where i think i should just to see, like, you know, because if I'm pushing my body pretty hard with some of the riding I do, I want to be as comfortable as possible. So maybe a bike fitting mm. is worth it, but I've never quite gone there yet. Yeah. I guess if you're, you probably don't need to fix what's not broken unless you're trying to optimize for speed or a record, yeah. um, then then I guess it's fine. But yeah, if people are having trouble or they're having knee pain, then um, it's definitely worth looking into. Yeah. And I'm not sure um, a bike fitting will help with ass chafing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's just lots of Vaseline. And, exactly. um, and, and time, you just get like such a hard ass after a while, don't mm-hmm. you? I, I, my, mine's kind of like soft again now after not biking so much. And occasionally I'll go out, do a bit of a bigger day, like 40 or 50 miles. And I get back and like, oh, my ass is just so painful. And, the, and you you forget those days, the long yeah. days in the saddle. And when it's back to back, it's brutal, isn't it? After like your first, about five days in, you just think, I can't sit on that thing anymore. Yeah, I did. Um, I did 13 days straight when I left Whitehorse. And uh, by the time I got to Winnipeg, I was, I was hurting. Like I was getting to the point where I'm like, I don't think I can go any more days. So I just actually called it quits there because my knee was starting to have a bit of a niggle. My ass was not doing great. And- mm. I, we, I remember we pulled into a gas station and uh, my ass was just so sore. And we had some, I think we had some Vaseline and we pulled over to the side of this gas station and I was just like, had my hands down my pants, you know, kind of like... Um, relieving myself like putting a bit of this on my on my bum because it was just so painful and this family drove through in a pickup truck and uh I was, I was kind of like half dressed it was it was awful it was like really scaring the kids they were like whoa look away don't, don't look at that man <laughs> ignore him <laughs> yeah yeah are you are you uh are you a brooks b17 man i am on my uh my touring bikes yeah yeah i'm um yeah. I'm all, I'm always not 100% sure if I love them or hate them because they do take a long time to get comfortable. Um, this summer, though, I think after after the big kilometers I did that I, I'm sold on it. I'm good for it. I like it. But they do mm. have their de- distinct advantages and disadvantages. Like if you're, if you're the kind of person that wants to be on arrow bars or down in more of an arrow position, I mean, the, the nose of the Brooks is not exactly um, soft gentle on your parts so yeah but i bought a specific seat post that has can toggle forward and backwards so when i do go on my arrow bars i move the seat forward and then i stay in my actual seated position yeah 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 very cool i I would like to try one i've heard um much the same from other people we we did buy some uh from amazon but they were i can't remember how much they were they used to be a lot more expensive something like 120 quid each Mm -hmm. and we didn't have loads of cash we thought, you know, I'd prefer to spend that on um, the trip. So 
we returned those. So that was an extra, yeah, 240 quid back in the bank. And then I just bought an extra pair of uh, cycling shorts. So I just wore, wore two. And um, that that worked a treat, actually. So that cost us an extra 15 quid or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it certainly worked for a while. But I would like to... I would like to try the Brooks and see if it's that much more comfortable because the one that I've got is is just not made for that at all. Like a, a downhill seat, it was uh, certainly took a while to get used to. Yeah, I did my first bike tour on my mountain bike with just a regular mountain bike seat, and um, it was okay for the tour I was doing because I did like decent length days, but then I rested for like a week in the city and just had fun and partied, and um, mm. that was my tour seven weeks of just having fun. Um, but it wasn't like I was on the bike every day, you know? Yeah. That sounds like a fun way to do it as well. Like it it doesn't always have to be riding every day. Uh, it's kind of like a, a fun way to travel between places. And when you're a bit younger, when like you want to just go partying, it's, um, it's definitely a fun way to just move between places as well as just being on like a proper tour. I was 32, but yeah, I was still. <laughs> <laughs> that's that. That's definitely still young enough to exactly. party. Um. Um, so you guys cycled. So when you got, um, you, le- you left Anchorage two days later, you had some knee problems. You took some time off. Did you cycle all the way to Whitehorse from there or did you, were you still off the bike for a bit? We, I remember we kept on trying to start biking again. I had such itchy feet that we would do a day and then have to stop somewhere and then do a day and stop somewhere and it took us ages to get to Whitehorse. And then we ended up, I can't, I, I'm, I'm, I know that we, we had to take a ride from somebody to Whitehorse to start this canoe that we'd booked and then we weren't going to okay. make it. So we had to, we took a ride from somebody for a bit of it. I can't really remember exactly, but um, yeah, we, we got there, left the bikes and then took a, and then did the, the canoe down, which gave us a couple of weeks to rest the knees and then took a hitchhike back up to the bikes and then cycled back down. Okay. Makes sense. Have you ever cycled around that part? Uh, just the summer up in Whitehorse, uh, up to Whitehorse and then back from Whitehorse. Um, so I haven't gone north up to Dawson City. I haven't um, yeah. gone over towards Haynes Junction. The guy I was cycling mm. with, he did, but I didn't really have time for it. So unfortunately. Yeah. 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 It's a really cool, really cool spot. It's uh, yeah, some beautiful landscape for sure. So you, uh, after you guys came back down, you, you were, were you good to bike ride after the canoeing and... I, I was still going, um, I would go kind of a few days and it was fine. And then I would, and then it would be, um, a little bit niggly and then, uh, yeah. So it was, it troubled me for months and months. Oh, wow. We, okay. Yeah. So we, we went from there, um, over to start the, well, yeah, we were headed over to the, the great divide mountain bike route. So, um, heading to Calgary huh? Mon- or sorry, um, where is it in Northern Canada? Uh, forget, yeah, somewhere near Calgary. We, Banff. Yeah, Banff. Yeah, Banff. Yeah, yeah. So we headed over to Banff, and uh, Banff was incredible. I mean, that that place is just like a uh, a postcard of what you think of for Canada. Mm-hmm. Like amazing, amazing mountains and really incredible wilderness. There was some. They had some of the worst forest fires for about seventy years, I think, and uh, that was. A real shame because we spent a lot of days cycling in the in kind of smoke and fog oh. and uh, a lot of roads were closed 
uh, and we were in Banff and yeah, I remember we couldn't leave when we wanted to because it was just so, uh, so smoky and yeah, a lot, a lot of, a lot of places were closed. So that kind of sucked and we couldn't see the, the beautiful views, uh, or a lot of them. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we actually ended up having to take a ferry, like a bit little, just stepping back a little bit. Mm-hmm. We had to take a ferry over to, from Vancouver over to Seattle. Hmm, trying to Actually, no, no, sorry. We took, we took a ferry to Vancouver. Oh. So we kept, we, we went to Hornby. You ever been to Hornby? No. Hornby Island. It's a great little spot as a lot of draft dodgers from America uh, went and hid on there on oh, like yeah? a little island just off the coast. So everyone's a, a real hippie. It's like permaculture, yoga, ville. So it was right up our street. Load of nudist beaches. It was it was really fun. It was a, a that can always that can always. I was gonna say you can't go wrong with that, but you can definitely go wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, there's there's this kind of idea that it's gonna be loads of beautiful ladies on a on a nudist beach, but it's almost always podgy middle aged blokes. Um, yeah. Pretty much ubiquitously, just. Uh, but 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 it was cool. We met we met a, a nice couple on there, a couple of naturists. So that was something that we hadn't experienced before, um, and it, it was weird. We were just like halfway through a conversation with them, and uh, we had all of our clothes on. They were like, "Oh well, you know, this is a nudist beach," and we were just like, "No, uh, we're just kind of walking around and um, exploring the place." And it's it's strange to be talking to someone and kind of talk to them for ten minutes, but then take your clothes off midway through a sentence because you feel uncomfortable having your clothes on. It was uh, it was it was very strange, but you know, the it kind of then felt weird to have your clothes on after mm-hmm. that when everyone was just naked all the time. And um, yeah, it was great. We had a, we had a really good time. They were very cool, and uh, yeah, I I certainly. I can kind of see I'm not I'm not into that now. I'm not, you know, like a, a nudist or a naturist, but mm-hmm. I see why it, I think there's something to it. Yeah. I definitely think there's some kind of freedom to it. And uh, yeah, I think we're a little bit, well, pretty repressed, especially in Anglo countries. Um, even little things like here you go in the sort you go in the sauna naked and in mm-hmm. Germany and the Netherlands and uh, and Denmark and then you go home and. Uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of weird the the repression of sexuality and yeah. the human body and nakedness, and I don't think it's very healthy to be so repressed around sex. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. Um, very very different here in North America, like in uh, yeah, like you said, Anglo-Saxon countries. Mm. Um, yeah. So actually, so I'm guessing that when you came down the Cassiar Highway, you guys went over to Prince Rupert and then took some ferries, or. What was your route? That's the one. Yeah. 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 Thanks for jogging my memory. Yeah. So the, the roads were all closed um, that you could bike or drive down on. So the only way to get down was from, uh, yeah, Prince Rupert uh, down to Vancouver. Yeah, Island, down to Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Vancouver Island. That's it. And then Hornby is a little island off Vancouver Island. Yeah. So we cycled down oh, Vancouver Island, cool. which was really cool. Yeah. It's nice. Huh? Um, oh, yeah. It's beautiful. Like that, that would be. Uh, one of the places that I'd live, uh, Vancouver Island uh, on the south, it was just, it was really, really cool. Beautiful little, little spot. And then from Vancouver, you headed over towards Banff and where you then started the Great Divide mountain bike ride. That's guess, it. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Have okay. you, have you done the Great Divide mountain bike ride? I haven't. No, it's on my bucket list. There's a, it's a pretty big bucket list, but it's on there. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh we only got about, a third of the way through um 
but it was incredible. I mean, like the riding was just unbelievable. Uh, real remote spots and yeah, proper wilderness. It was, okay. um, it was, it was, it was great. Managed to get really off the beaten track. Didn't see that many people. We were doing it quite late. I remember we were kind of racing the snow. I think it was late August maybe or September that we started uh and yeah just it really felt like the adventure that I'd come for when we kind of got on that on that trail uh and then my girlfriend ended up getting H. pylori uh which like a stomach infection uh no bacterial infection and about a third of the world have it it was just from some food I think oh really yeah so we didn't know what that was and she kept on having really really bad stomach pains and we would cycle for a few hours and then she'd be in excruciating pain falling off the bike and just like lying on the track so that made it really really hard and we were pretty remote one day we kept going we were like is it that you're dehydrated or that you're not having enough salt and we tried all this stuff um and uh yeah then then we ended up just thinking right right we should just go to the hospital now what state were you in um, we were in, I think we we're in maybe, Idaho maybe yeah, I think Idaho. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think so. Um, possibly when we went to the hospital was a little bit before we stopped. So it might've still been Montana. It was around Yellowstone national park. Okay. Uh, and I remember we had a bit of orange paracord and I tied it to her handlebars and I was towing her off the trail uh, back to the road and that was one of that was a brutal day that was really really hard uh put towing somebody with all of their stuff on mm-hmm. their bike on a trail and yeah she was in, in excruciating pain as well so we were kind of i think everybody has a bit of um good luck and bad luck on their tour uh and i think you know the knee stuff was definitely me just being an idiot not preparing properly mm-hmm. um but the she got sick then and then I got a salmonella later and then I got H. pylori. So I think we were a bit unlucky at times and that just made it so much harder. I felt we were a lot more drained, I think, from being ill mm-hmm. uh, and then being really tired and then um, having all those challenges. I felt like we met quite a few people on the road who'd had a bit of better luck and not had. I mean, doing the, the routes yeah. that we did were already quite testing. Um, but to do them when you're sick is uh, is really really tough. Brutal. So um, after after she had to stop because of the sickness, like how long were you guys off the trail, and did you continue after, or did you just take um, a bus or a different route, or what did you do? We came we came off the Great Divide mountain okay. bike route then because it was just uh, it was just too hard going when she was in such bad mm-hmm. shape. Um, so yeah, then we ended up doing a bit of road biking and. Um, yeah, going between different hospitals. And then we worked our way over to Salt Lake City. Um, and yeah, that was that was an interesting spot, like a, just a, a city full of Mormons. And you feel yeah. weird not being a Mormon, where normally it's kind of like uh, you get at home, you kind of like stop and maybe double take uh, at somebody who's dressed with the Mormon clothes and you're like, oh yeah, looks Mormons. And then it was mm-hmm. kind of the other way around where people would be like, oh look, some people that aren't Mormons. There's so, so many uh, of them it, in Korea. I remember I used to just see the, the, the young guys in a group walking around and they had their, their black pants, white shirt, black tie, their little yeah. name badge. 
and you're yeah. like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the one. Although I've got to say, some of the nicest people that we met, like yeah. they are a lot of very caring, really just nice people, uh, like very friendly, talking to you. And um, yeah, we uh, haven't got a bad word to say. I mean, there's a lot of funky stuff around their beliefs, and there's kind of, I think, as far as I remember, two parts of the church, one that's still uh, polygamous that kind of moved down to Mexico and around there. And then the oh. other who's, who stayed in Salt Lake and there, I don't think they're doing that anymore. I think it still happens, but it's not a mainstream part of the, the religion. Interesting. Um, I didn't know much about it. Yeah. There's, um, you know, Mitt Romney, mm-hmm. he's, um, from the group, the polygamous group who moved down to Mexico. No think, way. Is, uh, That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, which is which is just uh, a whole other story, but um, yeah. So Salt Lake was was very interesting, really different type of uh, landscape as well to move through there. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was also kind of hard going because uh, uh, I think my government was still a little bit sick. So uh, yeah, it, ma- it made it hard, and then we ended up taking an RV from there over to California. So my parents were coming out to see us in San, San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I'm just trying trying Mm -hmm. to think, was it San Francisco? But yeah, yeah, it was, it was San Fran. So, uh, we went to, we had to get there in like, um, I can't remember five or six weeks time or something. We were running out of cash. So we came over to California because I'd talked to one of my buddies who we'd met on the road up in Banff. And he said, oh, you should come and see us out in California. I said, oh, we're going the Great Divide mountain bike route. We probably won't be over that way. Um, But he was just like, oh, you should just come over and, uh, you know, we can find you some work if you run out of money. So we got there. And he sent us onto a weed farm, and uh, yeah, that started a whole nother adventure. Just turned up in this um, in Grass Valley in California. Didn't know anybody. Went to the supermarket, told to just talk to people and ask them if they've got any work. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, because it's because it's legal there. So, but it felt very strange. But we didn't have normal work permits, so we couldn't get a normal job. But yeah, we we're running out of cash. So, uh, so it was like you, know. you and a, like you're, it was like you and a bunch of Mexicans going up to some guy in a truck at the start of the day saying, Hey man, you need that extra hands. <laughs> well, the, it's actually mainly, they call them trimmigrants. So okay. mainly people from other parts of the States. Oh, and, interesting. um, yeah, yeah. Kind of young people normally, uh, before they go to college, um, or even people like during the holidays, and and then a lot of locals still employed, so it was it was just a, a, a weird experience, but it was amazing. It was really really cool. Like um, we didn't know anybody there, so I was like, how do we how do we find growers here? Mm-hmm. So we've been told to go to this really organic uh, supermarket where they all shop because they're super into their like organic quinoa, and yeah. uh, so we were just walking up and down the health food health foods aisle talking to people and just like pick up a cereal and then just ask them like yeah have you have you tried this and they'd be like no i don't have any work okay yeah good thanks uh and then they they told us to we kind of met these people and uh, they were like we don't have any work for you but where you'll really find some is a ecstatic dance tonight so we're like right what is that so um it was just like, yeah, um, ecstatic dance it's like a rave but there's no alcohol no drugs and there's no talking so we're just like, okay. So went along to that, met all of these like real hippies. And uh, have you ever tried ecstatic dance? Is that one of these places where you have headphones on and they tune into a station or something? 
Of, often you do, yeah, that's kind of silent disco thing. But this was just everybody's listening to the same thing. And it's like tribal beats, okay. but with, uh, uh, but yeah, there's no booze or alcohol and everyone's dancing in a very eccentric way doing like animal movement. So it's, um, it's, it's quite out there or it can be quite out there. Uh, and was certainly some, a sight to behold for us. Like I'd, I'd not really seen anything like that before. I feel like you uh, haven't truly then- lived until you've tried that. i i I tried it once in in nepal but it was a a, a, like buddhist retreat but it was a very different feel there that was a lot more reserved this Mm. was like um animalistic but it was it was great i mean for an experience that's what you want on your bike tour right you want to go and do some weirdest shit that you can imagine and uh and this was certainly filled with a lot of interesting people people wearing capes and you know with staffs and just like who these what is going on here uh and then yeah we we ended up um trying to talk to it was it was a silent disco so we ended up spending three hours and this was the worst way to try and meet people to ask them if they had any work because you weren't allowed to talk to them and i was just like oh this is going terribly and then um that finished and they said oh well everybody goes to this bar elixir after this we we so we were like right this is going to be where where the magic happens we went into this bar and uh, i was just like oh i really fancied a beer so i went to go and try and order a beer and they said oh we only do tea and i was thinking mm, of course you do uh, it's only it's uh, no alcohol here so so they had all these weird tea flavors that i'd never heard of and um i I asked, I asked for one and I said, oh, how much is that? And they said it was like $17 or something. I was like, that is so Whoa. expensive for a tea. <laughs> what is going on? So we, and all this ingre- all these ingredients that I hadn't really heard of before. And uh, so we're, we're drinking this tea um, and I just started to feel like, like everything was going a bit fuzzy and a bit funny colored. And I was like, oh, there's something in the tea. That's why it's so expensive. So uh, we, I, I still don't really know what it was, but we had a great time. Um, had a, it was a laser show and it was great. We met loads of people, didn't ask anybody whether they had any work. Uh, we left about four hours later after like a big party, like this rave. And it was, and it was great fun. We ended up going to sleep in the local park uh, because we didn't have anywhere to stay. And we thought, oh, we'll definitely meet someone. But we didn't even, you know, try to ask anyone because we were having such a good time. And uh, not that in touch with reality. So we got to the local park, like, uh, and just put the put the thermarests up, slept under the stars, and it was and it and it was cool. But we thought, like, oh, this is this has been an epic failure. So the next morning, we woke up and just went to a bar. I uh, went to a restaurant, sorry, and we're just like, right, fuck it. Even though our bu- our budget is like ten dollars a day each, let's just go and have a big breakfast. Mm-hmm. So we went, and then we met this amazing girl, Annabelle, who worked there, and she said, "Oh, are you guys, trimmigrants." We said, "No, we're cycling on our bicycles um, down to uh, uh, Argentina." And she was like, "Wow, that's amazing! If you got, if you guys got a place to stay." And we said, no. And then she said, oh, well, you can stay at my house. Are you guys looking for some work? And we we're just like, yeah. And she said, oh, we can get you some work at my friend Willie's farm. So oh, we went from sure. having nothing and it just being um, pretty uh, hopeless to then meeting these, they are, we call them our Grass Valley fam. And they were just amazing, like really, really cool, lovely people. Stayed with them for, I think, about a month. And yeah, worked on this weed farm, had a great time. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a really incredible experience. It was it was great. I'm sure you've had much the same where everything looks like it's hopeless. And then you somebody appears from 
nowhere and saves the day. Yeah, definitely. Um, so after leaving there, you guys decided to head to towards Mexico, obviously, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. And yeah. cycling the Baja, I mean, once again, very remote, um, mm. challenging, risk involved. Did you Did you feel like, man, we've had so much bad luck with health issues? Is this pushing our luck too much? Um, yeah, I, th- I think by then we were feeling a bit recovered, a bit rejuvenated because uh, we'd had some time off when we were in California. And so we were just both really pumped for it. Uh, I'd seen uh, and read a fair bit about the route. And so, no, I think we were, we were both kind of really up for it. But it was certainly a challenge. I think the most challenging riding that we did, it was hard, long days. Um, and yeah, you know, a few little things made it a bit harder. Like thorns, right? Thorns everywhere, I heard. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, you need to have some tubeless tires for that bad boy. It's just, um, it, it was a lot of fixing. T- that was the only thing that we had to do, obviously, like fix flats and put more inner tubes in and go through those. And uh, yeah, very, very thorny, but just just beautiful, like very remote, unbelievable skies, wild camping in the desert and cooking out under the stars was um, definitely some of like, the most precious memories from the mm. trip. Nice. Sounds awesome. Time for a quick interruption to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventure partners. The Bike Tour Adventures podcast is proud to be partnered with Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat post paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as the main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used a race back since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Named after the animals that roam the Tibetan plateau, Cheru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre-Arnaud Le Magnin in 2009. After noticing a lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. For discount codes, check out the show notes or go to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast website. Yeah, it was it was really, really cool. But yeah, very, very tough. Uh, it was super hot in the day, you know, like 36, 38 degrees. And then you're biking for, I don't know, we did, we weren't doing as big a days as a lot of people do. I can't remember, something like 70 Ks, but doing it off road, it was, uh, that was like all day riding, stop for a bit of food. Yeah, that's hard. Um, but yeah, hard, hard going. I mean, to see what the guys do when they race it, it's just unbelievable. Like Lael doing 200 plus kilometers on that. Like, I actually don't know how that's possible. Like, I don't, I, I don't get it. I guess determination. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, I think a lot of training, um, that, that too, you've got to be. And, um, and yeah. Re- and, and I mean, keeping the weight down too, right? Like the, the weight on the bike makes a huge difference. Yeah. So you've got to pack light and be just ready to rough it. Yeah. There was a lot of times where I wish I had warmer clothes on my tour and it was middle of summer and I'm up in the mountains freezing my ass off at night and I'm thinking, why didn't I pack more? And I'm like, oh yeah, I remember why I didn't, but 
don't know if it was a good <laughs> idea, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've done, I've done a few lighter weight, um, bike packing trips here and there. When we got to Guatemala, we did a bit and, uh, yeah, you, I mean, you notice it, don't you? Like you're, you're just like, I am really cold. I mm-hmm. would love an extra layer right now, but, um, it's just, you're, you're taking on a different beast. Like you, you have to pay in comfort what you get rewarded in remoteness mm-hmm. and speed and, uh, yeah, the ability to go far. So, uh, certainly less comfortable, but really feels like an adventure. So if, uh, if somebody were to have time to either do the Great Divide or the Baja Divide, which would you recommend? Mm, yeah, that's a good one, actually. Um, I think if you have never done a big off-road uh, tour like that before, mm-hmm. I would probably recommend the Great Divide mountain bike route. Okay. Um, it's, it's easier going. It's easier you don't have to be so hardcore i felt like um on the baja there was often like not a way out you couldn't quit because you were just so far away from everything like water and food whereas uh the great divide mountain bike route you kind of had an option if you wanted to stop there was always a town um not too far away uh and the 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 Baja Divide is quite a lot quicker. So if you've got the time, I would do the Great Divide mountain bike route if you haven't done either before. Um, but if you don't have so long, then then the Baja Divide is an awesome route just because it uh, still feels so adventurous mm-hmm. um, and such a challenge. But uh, you can get the whole thing done a lot quicker. I yeah, think it's, it's 1,700 right? kilometers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. It's, um, it's definitely on both of them are on my bucket list. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear about your experience doing it as well. It's uh, they're, they're both really, really cool. Yeah. Um, so did you guys cycle down to La Paz? Did you do the final loop at the bottom or was it like La Paz where you kind of shot off across the, the gulf? We stopped at La Paz and then we wanted to get a boat over to the mainland. And uh, we'd heard all these stories and like read on blogs about people who uh, they were just saying, oh, you just go to the marina in La Paz and you just jump on somebody's boat and uh, you like always get a lift and it's pretty easy. So uh, we were thinking, oh, great. And then mm-hmm. we got there and then it turned out that everybody does that at a certain time of year when the, when the wind is blowing the right way. Um, and we were there at the wrong time of year. So everyone was going back up north as opposed to going down south. So that made it really tricky. And we were like, oh, we'll find someone, we'll find someone. We're ever the optimists and uh, didn't find anyone. We found some some guy who said, I'm not going that way, but you can just come on my boat for yeah. a week if you want. And, uh, and that was really, really cool. And um, just kind of uh, going and spearfishing. And, oh, that's uh, cool. And... Yeah, yeah, they they were they were free divers, so they gave us a few lessons in free in free diving, and um, they were going down with the yeah the spear guns, and then one of the guys was a sushi chef. Were so, your, yeah, were, were they free some... free diving lessons? <laughs> they yeah they 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 were actually Sweet. yeah they were they, they yeah it was great. It was just we were all on the boat with nothing to do other than kind of hang out. One of the guys was just about to qualify as a teacher, so he was like, "Oh, can you guys be my guinea pigs?" Oh, that's so, amazing. Uh, yeah. I did it my free dive cool. course in uh, Indonesia and it was awesome. I haven't really practiced oh, nice. any of the skills since then, but yeah. it's always there, you know, like uh, I know the breathing techniques and the things to think about and practice and yeah, it was super fun, super fun. It's it's quite incredible how powerful the techniques are, right? Mm-hmm. I uh, I was always pretty good at holding my breath, but um, uh, 
I remember doing the first set, uh, the, the first time that I'd done like the, the set of breathing techniques. And then um, he's kind of coaching you through, you're, you're holding your breath and he's like, you start to feel the contractions and your belly is, uh, yeah, contracting. Your diaphragm kind of starts like vibrating, trying to think, oh, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, that, but then you just get into this like very relaxed zone and he's just like, you're going to be okay. It's fine. It's fine. Just push through it, push through it. And, um, and then opened my eyes and looked at the clock and I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something like four minutes, 40. And I was oh, like, wow, wow really that well. is yeah. incredible. After just doing these breathing exercises, uh, for one time, you make that much of an improvement. Yeah. It was, uh, it's, it's amazing. <clears throat> yeah. I think on, on the dry breathing techniques, so like laying on the floor when we were learning it, I think I did, yeah, about four, four and a half, I forget. And then in the water was around three and a half. Um, yeah. with like static, just staying still. And then you see mm. guys who are like good free divers and they can do it dynamic while swimming laps in the pool and hold for like six minutes. And you're like, holy crap, how <laughs> do you do that? That's like, yeah. Yeah. Hard, hard to comprehend. Like, um, there's that guy, William Truebridge, who's, I think he's kind of like the, certainly one of the best in the world. And he dives at this place called Blue Hole or Blue Arch. Mm-hmm. Um, and He's going down like 118 meters um, free diving and then and then touching a kind of boy at the bottom and then coming back up. And it is it's un- unbelievable. It's really, really cool. Something yeah. I'd like to get more into. Yeah. The one guy, one of the guys at the, the Gili Islands there in Indonesia, I think he was he used to compete like world record level stuff. Crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyways, back to your tour. We could talk about all these other things all day, I guess. <laughs> um, so how did you get over to the mainland after? Where, what was your route? Um, we ended up having to pay for the, for the proper ferry. I think we couldn't find anybody. Okay. And um, I think we, what I actually did was I said that I would do some photography for the group and do a social media post. So that's a huge bit of advice for any listeners who are thinking like, how can I make money whilst I'm away? Or um, how can I get free stuff? Um, doing media for uh, the businesses that you encounter along the way is an amazing way to do that. We had a lot of free mm-hmm. hotels. Really? I say a lot, probably like 20 in total for the whole time. We didn't stay in one until California. Um, but then after that, I kind of stumbled upon this thing where um, as long as you're fairly decent with the camera, uh, most companies haven't paid for professional photography. So you can just take some photos for them and then uh, agree, find a few relevant blogs and then you can post on there, give your independent review. And uh, a lot of the time they just say, yeah, that sounds great. And then you just get to stay there for a night or ideally two. Yeah. And um, oh, that, that helped a lot because um, yeah, when we were feeling fairly beat down after the Baja divide um, started to do that after this ferry led us on for a reduced price. And yeah, I had a, had a lot of hotels, which were, which was, which was really, really good. Where did you take the ferry to? Cause I know like when you cross that water, it's like Sinaloa, isn't that like a major cartel <laughs> province state, whatever you call it? Yeah. Yeah. So we went into, it's not Mazatlan, it's yeah. called. Okay. Um, and that's in Sinaloa. So yeah, if you've watched Narcos, then exactly. uh, you'll know that's the home, the hometown um, of Felix Gallardo. Uh, so yeah, it, it used to be, and I think it probably still is, um, pretty heavy Narcoville, uh, but Guadalajara, uh, where we ended up going to after that is, is I think still pretty hotbed of activity and it feels it 
there's something there that's different to a lot of other places that we went. Mm -hmm. It's kind of rough around the edges in some parts of the city. And uh, yeah, that's where my girlfriend's bike was stolen. We went to go and do some yoga in the park. And uh, this place looked nice enough during the day. And we went to uh, cycle into the park. This place was massive. Um, and the security guard said, oh, no, you you can't come in with with bikes. We said, oh, we, were, we won't ride them. We'll just walk through with them. And he said, no, you're not allowed them. Um, and we said, oh, okay, well, we'll, we'll just we uh we, we don't want to leave them because we're on this big bike tour so we said oh I'll, I'll watch them for you and he was like the guy the guy who worked there and he was in his uniform and everything so uh we said kind of looked at each other just thinking like hmm is this dodgy and then just thought no you know it's the it's the middle of the day um this guy obviously works here he's got his uh his like radio on and in his uniform so we locked the bikes up and then went in in there Came back 45 minutes later and only one bike left and a cut bike lock um, and the guard had gone. So, um, yeah, that that really, really sucked. That was like that moment of disbelief where you just think this can't have happened. Uh, fairly essential why, for the bike Why tour. do you think they left your bike? I, do, I don't know. I'm not sure, actually. Kind of weird, maybe, maybe because there was only one thief, so ah, he maybe. could only ride one yeah. bike. That's probably um, it. It's probably the guard took it. I'm just like, oh. Well, yeah, yeah. Then then we got back and I was just I was just looking at I was just like, oh my God, oh my God, where is this bike? And then this guy appears, the the guard again, and he says, Oh, are you guys okay? And we said, um, well, no, one of the bikes gone. And he's like, Oh, starts starts radiating through to someone. So I'm fairly certain that he was involved in it. I imagine he probably gave somebody the nod and just said, There's two expensive looking bikes here. Um, get down with your wire cutters and uh, come and jump on one quickly because we didn't even leave them there for that long. Yeah, and if you uh, got, if maybe even he took it and then he was coming back yeah. and hoping to get the second one, but he saw you guys and it's just better to play innocent and be like, oh no, what's wrong? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so knows? he said, oh, I'm going to call the police. So yeah, we we tried with the police and it was just um, yeah a no go. I was cycling around on my bike and kind of rage trying to find somebody, which was a stupid idea. Because, uh, I mean, yeah, a lot of people are armed there and it's pretty dodgy. So, I, But I was just so annoyed and kind of disappointed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we that started a whole um, rigmarole of trying to get a new bike over, which was just a nightmare. We didn't really have enough money to buy a new one. People were amazing. We did a, we did a crowd um, sourcing kind of fundraiser and people were just putting in, you know, like five or 10 quid and sometimes a bit more and friends and family. And, uh, and that was amazing. I, it was so nice to feel that support yeah. after the feeling of being robbed, uh, which is really awful. Um, but yeah, that restored our faith and, uh, yeah, we managed to order another bike, but then it got lost on the way from Poland oh, and it missed, it missed its, um, travel over. My auntie worked at BA, so she pulled a few strings to get the bike over because it was going to be about $400 to transport it. So she'd managed to get a free spot on a flight for us. So she did that. And then the bike got lost on the way from leaving Poland. Nobody knew where it was. So it missed it, this thing that she'd, this slot that she'd arranged for us. Uh, and then it turned up a couple of days later, but then, you know, the slot was gone. So it was just a nightmare. We finally got the bike in, uh, had all the papers. I'd printed off um, everything to show that it had been purchased abroad and the pa- tax was paid there. We got to uh, customs and um, we said, oh, we're here to pick up a parcel. And then the bloke was like, what's in it? 
and we said, oh, uh, it's just our stuff. So don't worry. Here's the, here's the papers that prove that um, it's our stuff. And he was like, oh, it's a bike. How much did it cost? And we were just thinking, oh, no, please, no. Uh, and he was like, is it an expensive one? And we were like, um, and we had to show him how much it cost. And it was fairly expensive. And he was like, oh, I'm going to need to take a further look into this and I'll call you guys back. So we get a call. We get actually got a WhatsApp message on the back of a, mm-hmm. genuinely on the back of an envelope written in green pen, just saying tax 1000 US dollars. Uh, so yeah, he wanted a bribe of a thousand dollars to release the bike <laughs> and that, that kicked off about six weeks of kind of fighting with them. Fortunately, a guy from my master's was a Mexican guy who'd started a pharmacy doing a lot of import export. And uh, yeah, Octavio, big shout out. He basically um, helped us to uh, get get it down to about $300. And he was amazing and actually put the money through his company and uh, as, as a gift and then kind of gave it to us after that. But oh, wow. that was that was a real... It was it was really tough at that point. We were just like, God, we're having a lot what of. What are we doing? Huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was all yeah, in Mexico. Sure and that was all Mexico City. Uh, this is happening, right? Um, this was in Guadalajara. Oh, this is uh, you were still so in Guadalajara, in waiting for the bike and everything there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm, okay. So it was tough. And then you cycled into Mexico City, and it's a, a massive, massive city of like thirty million people. What was that like? Mm. Oh, oh! It was amazing. It's huge, beautiful old city. It kind of looks like a uh, a European city, you know, co- uh, colonial buildings mm-hmm. and um, a bit like kind of Barcelona esque. But oh, yeah. then um, it has the old pyramids from um, the the Maya that was really really cool to see. We went over to Teotihuacan and to the ruins, and that's just spectacular. So so cool to see the remains of what the the civilization had mm-hmm. left and how different it is and to have a bit of contact with that. Mexico is now pretty um, developed, isn't kind of the right word, but uh, modernized, I should say. Um, and so there's not really that much connection with old times um, and, the, and, you know, pre, pre what we'd call pre-civilization. Uh, Whereas when you go down further in Central America, then people start to look different and they dress differently and you really feel like you're stepping back in time. Okay. Whereas Mexico, it was kind of all all blended in. But it was uh, it was a very cool city, really good food. I did end up getting salmonella there, which uh, which sucked. That was about eight weeks of just brutal salmonella after that. I didn't know what it was. I was misdiagnosed three times from three different doctors. And I just thought that I kept on getting food poisoning, but I was getting losing a lot of weight, still bike, still biking around, getting thinner and thinner. So what is the getting, what are the what are the effects of salmonella? Uh, you basically need the toilet a lot, um, and uh, so you 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 can start to get things like typhoid in your blood afterwards, um, and it can be it can be very serious. I think I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that you can die from it or related things that you get mm-hmm. afterwards. But uh, you basically have a lot of diarrhea, sickness, sweating, fever. Um, so, yeah, I just had Which that. means you're losing fluids constantly, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just couldn't couldn't keep the weight on. Um, and that made biking hard. I was like, too, I could see all my clothes, like my, my shorts and my trousers were just getting really, really baggy on me. 
and I was looking very, very pale, purple under the eyes. Um, Fittest you've so, ever been, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. It. I think. I think that could definitely be the size zero diet. It's uh, certainly certainly gets the weight off you. Um, but it but it made it hard. Like when we mm-hmm. went, um, we we then went uh, bike packing in. Kind of changed the setup a bit lighter in Oaxaca, and uh, in the southern mm-hmm. states. And there's a really good route on bikepacking dot com um through oaxaca uh and i think it's like four or five days something like that oh okay but uh i was i i finally had a blood test from a doctor just at the start of that um in a place called ocotlan and then he said oh you don't look very good um i'll let you know how it goes because we wanted to get get going and get on this route so we did and then we cycled for a couple of days into the mountains um and it was very very remote and uh, then I got a text from him saying, oh, you've got salmonella. It's in your blood. You need to get to a pharmacy. But we'd had, uh, fortunately, we had a pretty chance encounter with the cartel there. Um, so we so this this is why it's kind of important if people are going to do this route, if you see it on bikepacking.com. Um, it takes you right into a village or right next to a village that's run by the cartel. So um, we cycled up into the top of this valley and then the, the signs change from uh being written in spanish to um being written in zapoteca so you can't read any of the signs and there's like a skull and crossbones at the start of this road but there's nowhere else to go and that's where the route i think that's where the route we might have got a little bit lost um but it's pretty much right next to it if not maybe you're supposed to veer off on the route but we went down into this town because couldn't see another way through and uh got to this little shop and um yeah just went to buy some lunch and started talking to the guy and he was kind of very uh offish he was like very standoffish he was like and quite aggressive he was like where are you from and I said, oh, I'm from England and she's from Sweden. And he's like, what are you doing? And we said, uh, well, we're just on a bike tour. And we were obviously had all of our gear on. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was like, right, okay. Started interviewing us a little bit. And then he was like, oh, have you got your part? Let, let me see like the British passport. Let me see the Swedish passport. So really didn't trust us, wanted to see. And it all just felt a bit strange. Um, so we showed him and then, uh, and then, yeah. And he was like, then he lightened up and he was really, really cool, very friendly. And he was like, oh yeah, guys, have a beer, have a, um, a mezcal, which is like the The, the liquor local. Yeah. Yeah. So started lighting us up on that at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and then, yeah, Kubi was like, he's got a very fancy watch for, uh, running a small shop here. Like it was, <laughs> it was in the middle of nowhere. And I looked over and I was like, wow, yeah, maybe he inherited it. And I didn't really, it took me a long time to really cotton on, to be honest. Um, and then he said, okay, yeah, well, where are you guys staying today? And we said, oh, we're going to go to this next town. And he was like, no, 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 it's too late. You should stay here today. So, uh, you can put your hammocks up in the back. We said, okay, yeah, great. So we went and put the hammocks up in the back. And there's just giant bags of weed. And uh, we were just like, oh, this guy's really into weed. Um, but still, I didn't really click. Uh, and then it, and then it, it, we we had a couple of beers, put the hammocks up, and we were just lying there. And then Kubi was like, something feels really strange about this place. And then the guy comes out a couple of minutes later, and he just says, oh, just let you know, curfew started now, so, uh, so you can't leave. And we were like, uh... Okay. And this was in Spanish and our Spanish was mm-hmm. okay, but, but not amazing. And I was like, did he say there's a curfew? 
Um, and then Kubo was like, yeah, I'm sure I heard him say pistol before on when he was on the radio because they all had these um, like handheld radios. And I was like, no, 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 I, th- I think it's fine. And then he goes back into the other room, comes back out, and he's got like a pump-action shotgun. And then he walks out the front door and closes the front door. And that's when we kind of had that moment where like, yeah, well, this is definitely very dodgy. Like, I'm not really sure what's going on here. So it was a little bit... Uh, scary we're just kind of like oh i don't know if we're kind of prisoners hostages or guests um, (laughs) you're being secured safely or you're being held you're not sure (laughs) yeah 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 we're being protected or imprisoned so he he went off didn't really hear anything else and his wife and everybody else there was speaking in zapoteca so and they didn't speak spanish so we couldn't really ask them what was going on then this guy um came in who uh just came through the front door who was kind of young he was about 22 and he was a he was a Mexican dude, um, and he was like, "Oh, you guys, you got some big kahunas coming here." And we were like, uh, "What?" And he said, "Yeah, you guys coming straight in here? Like that's that's awesome. I think that's really cool that you are brave enough to do that." And we were like, "I I really I think there's been some mistake. Like we're just cycling through." And he's like, "Where do you think you are?" And we said, "Yeah, we're just on this bikepacking route." And he was like, "No, this is where they store all of the drugs when they run them up through Mexico up to the U.S. Like, this is a state where this is a town where they don't accept the government. It's run by the people here. Mm. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was kind of it was pretty scary at that point. But they the the dude got back. Loads, all the town came in. We all had loads of." drinks and uh and got drunk together and had a really good time and then left fairly early the next morning they're, so, they're, uh, the, they're the nice mafia yeah yeah exactly the, the guy was like oh my uncle he's a good guy as long as he likes you and uh and he kept on making jokes like that and i was like hmm, i really hope that he likes us like he's he's and i was like does he like us does he like he's like yeah yeah, yeah he loves you but he said that they'd spotted us up on the top of the hill before we'd cycled down into the town they were like oh yeah the snipers uh, the, or the guys with the scopes um, look look out to see if anybody's coming into the town when they shouldn't be because the army go in and try to burn the crops. Ah. So uh, that's what that's what they do. They're doing a pat- patrol to go and see if there's anybody trying to come and like burn burn their crops. So um, yeah, it was uh, it was a it was a very pleasant run in with the with the cartel. So you didn't become mules or anything like that, no. So- no, well, not not that I know of. I did wonder afterwards. I was mm-hmm. like, check your bag thoroughly because uh, we we you may be know. carrying stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did um, but, uh, no, it's very pleasant. I feel like like hearing your stories in Mexico. I mean, a it sounds awesome, but I think a lot of people after cycling Canada and US, they're they're not really prepared for the cultural and social differences that they they might find in Mexico. Mm. It's certainly a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's ways to be more prepared and? avoid situations um i think if you've traveled uh, a lot before then it's kind of, then you'll be very familiar with it you develop a kind of almost sixth sense for dangerous situations even when you don't know mm-hmm. quite what's going on something there's there's a feeling to it um but yeah just being very aware we it, it's it's really interesting there's kind of two camps uh who most people fit or, or a lot of people that we met fitted into. There was people who I thought were way over the top, worried and scared um, about they were always going to be abducted or something bad was going to happen. They were they kind of let it ruin their trip because they were so on edge. Um, and then there was other people who were so blasé 
that they were just like, oh, no, it's not dangerous here. Like people are just always blowing it out of proportion. Okay. And the, I mean, the numbers, um, the number of deaths, which is uh, factually recorded, shows that it is, in a sense, dangerous. Like it's more dangerous than being in Canada, for example. There are just more people dying, more tourists dying, and not necessarily always in violence, but from, you know, like road traffic accidents yeah. and things like that. So I think uh, if you have been traveling before, then just kind of keep your normal wits about you. Um, if you haven't, then, uh, yeah, trying to strike that balance between staying, not getting too far off the beaten track unless you feel really comfortable. Uh, trying to be with others if you can is is always good. Like as when you're alone, you are more vulnerable. Um, and if you can speak a bit of the local language, then that really that helps, helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a that that's a biggie. Like, I, I I mean, it it is dangerous. There are a couple of cyclists who got their heads chopped off a few weeks ahead of us. You might have heard of it in the in the news. There was a Polish guy and a German guy, both fairly big dudes, traveling together. They were a few weeks in front of us, and we would have been in Chiapas at the same time as them. But because uh, Kubi's bike was stolen, we were about a month behind. And yeah, they they were just traveling through. Nobody really knows what happened. There was a local cover-up. They tried to say that they fell off a fell off the side of a cliff mm. and that it was like uh, swerving out the way of a car. And then yeah, a local, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then a local journalist um, and one of their feet uh, as well. Um, a local lawyer who was kind of turned journalist to expose the fact that a lot of people are be a lot of Westerners were being robbed and killed. Uh, cycle tourists um and so he went and investigated it because he was just like there's no way this happened again mm -hmm. and then yeah and uncovered all these um kind of terrible stories of people in the past and then covered this story and yeah they'd both been beheaded and uh and a foot chopped off and then Fuck. there was the 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 bikes were left next to the wrong person or the trailer was next left to the wrong person so it was obviously a cover-up i mean the heads being chopped off is clear enough for that but um that that stuff just doesn't really happen as much in that's very rare that that happens in Canada. So it's, it is in some ways more dangerous, but it doesn't have to be, and it shouldn't be enough to, I definitely don't want to put people off ever going there because that's still very rare. And, uh, and yeah, so yeah, I, I think and it's I, definitely- And I have had people say like, if you haven't been cycle touring in Mexico, you've got to go. It's so cool. It's amazing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, probably my favorite place that we went on this trip was was Mexico. It was it's so diverse. The it's kind of like a continent in a country. It's got mountains. There's pine forests that look like Sweden or Scotland uh, that I just didn't expect there. They've got full deserts like in the Baja, and then beautiful two oceans, um, lots of freshwater lakes. It's it's a stunning place, and some amazing people like some of the most kind. Mm -hmm awesome people that we met were some Mexicans who were still in contact with. So yeah, it's, it's not the wild West as some people see it. And it's definitely not all gun toting and, uh, and gang violence, but there is some of that there, but it's pretty unlikely that as a side cycle tourist, you'll get mixed up in it, but it's, it's not impossible. Mm. How much time did you spend in Mexico? Um, I think it's about six months, maybe, oh, maybe wow. a little bit. Nice. Like full on long time. Nice. And did you guys cycle all the way to Panama? Like I know you ended your trip in Panama. Did you, did you bike through Guatemala, El Salvador, I'm presuming? 
we bike through Guatemala and then um, the uh, Nicaragua was having a was having a revolution. So the leader was removed at gunpoint. There was blockades mm. um, in the street. They they couldn't. They ran out of food. So uh, because yeah, because of these blockades. So it was a really, really sketchy time. Some people got stuck there. Some of our friends who were cycle touring were a little bit further ahead. And they just said, like, you can't even cycle through on most of the roads. People are out in the streets with guns. It's really, really dangerous. Don't okay. cycle through here. So, uh, And they wouldn't actually let you into the country unless you were taking a bus straight through. So we had to take a bus through Nicaragua. Um, and then... Yeah, we and then we cycled a little bit of Costa Rica, met up with a friend, traveled around a little bit there, and then we got to Panama. And then, yeah, Panama was the unknowingly the last stop, but uh, that's when Kubi fell off her bike in the time that she nearly got squashed by a lorry. A guy okay. near driving pretty erratically um, came over the side of the road and uh, nearly nearly squashed her, but she swerved out the way, fell off her bike, and then. Uh, uh, shattered her knee and needed oh, knee surgery shit. but our travel insurance ran out the next day so um we were stuck without any insurance and uh so yeah had to we got stuck in a hotel put up in a hotel for i think about a week whilst we were waiting to see whether they would cover it or not they did do that and then um they revoked it they wanted us to pay all that money back and then we had a big a big battle with them over that so we certainly had a, a few of those incidents. yeah because the the accident happened while you were insured right yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. but um, but they said that she wasn't insured for surgery that she needed. So we ended up coming back. The plan was to get some surgery here and then and then go back out. But um, yeah, it'd been eighteen months and it felt like we'd been away and had an amazing adventure. And uh, I think we both felt ready for something a little bit different. Then, like I think I guess you've probably felt the same. It's I think as as humans, we're very adaptable and we get used to whatever we're doing. That's kind of one of our superpowers as humans mm-hmm. that we're very adaptable. Um, but it it got to the point where I wasn't appreciating it as much as I felt like I should be because you were just thinking like, oh, another beautiful beach, another yeah. amazing sunset. Wow. Another day where I don't have to do anything. I just get to cycle. And there, there's, I, I missed working on projects and I miss kind of making things happen and being part of something. And, uh, and whilst it was great, uh, I, I really loved it and I wouldn't have changed it for the world. I felt like then I wanted to come back and start to share a bit of what I felt like I'd learned or um, discovered on the adventure with others. So um, yeah, it felt like the right thing to do to come back and I'd love to do this. We're going to do the second part one day in, uh, in a few years and do um, Colombia down to Argentina but for now, it um, yeah, it felt like the right thing to do. And I'm really enjoying being back in normal life for now, doing little trips. When did you guys come back? We got back in November 2018. Okay, so it's just over a year. And then that's when you kind of started planning the like the, the transformation of the podcast, the business, all that's kind of started to come into play. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I got back and I thought, wow, this was such a powerful experience. And most people a bit like we started at the beginning all the all the things that i felt go along with adventure i wanted to share that with others but realized that most people don't want to quit their job and go on an 18 month trip they want short sharp hits of adventure to incorporate with the rest of their life mm-hmm. and um and that's what i'm trying to do with call to adventure give people the 
the benefits of the the kind of exciting and different lifestyle and seeing new places and connecting with new people and connecting with nature, but in integrating that into a normal lifestyle. And what is the niche of call to adventure? Is it is there a certain type of adventures that you focus on more, or is it kind of all encompassing? Well, yeah, when it started, it was really kind of like climbing and mountaineering type stuff. So I'd originally just planned to launch a media company and uh, and create podcasts and videos. And I got into video production whilst we were on the bike tour. I filmed it. Um, still not quite ready, but but it, but it will be. It's always hard. You know what it's mm-hmm. like when yep. you have loads of other projects and paid work and that kind of thing. It always takes a back seat. But yeah, it'll come out one day. Um and so, yeah, I wanted to get into doing that, doing that for brands, helping them create content, outdoor brands and ones who I liked, who I felt like were doing something good and on a bigger mission than just making money. Uh, and, and yeah, kind of building a community, building an audience of people that were interested in the outdoors mm-hmm. and seeking a bit more from life. Um, but then a lot of people who were coming to the site and I was talking to when I was kind of building the readers and community they were like, this is great, but I'd really love an adventure to be able to go on. Like, what should I do now? Um, I've bought this whole idea of adventure. Um, what should I do? So then just started adding a few trips. Some some people that I'd met, I did another bike tour through France and met an amazing mountain guide who's uh, an Everest guide and one of the most kind of revered and uh, a really special guy. Um, and so he just said, yeah, let's, let's work together on this. Um, you, you can get people pumped on it and, uh, and we'll work to design some itineraries all the way from weekend mountaineering training to, uh, full Everest and seven summit ascents. Uh, and then just more people kind of said like this, this is great, but uh, have you got anything? Have you got any bike packing? Uh, yeah, that's really cool. Have you got any stand up paddle boarding? Have you got any just hiking weekends? I'd like something a bit, a little bit less hardcore, so uh, I've just tried to add things that I think give ensure that there's something for everybody because mm-hmm. there's a lot of um, kind of, I don't know if it's uh, machismo, but um, in the adventure world, people are very quick to define what they think an adventure is. And for some people, it's just going away with five strangers on a walking holiday and doing a yep. bit of wild swimming. Like it's, that is an adventure. It's pretty people. wild when you think of like, yeah, what, what characterizes as an adventure to some people, to others... A is impossible or to other people might be like, oh, that's not an adventure. That's just a normal day, you know? So it's, it's pretty broad yeah. spectrum. Yeah. So we tried to be agnostic about that and get, and gives, uh, as long as it's getting people out together, doing new things and ideally cramming in some, uh, a bit of environmentalism and sustainability and trying to get people to care about, um, the planet and, uh, think about what they're doing, then, then that's, that's what I want to encourage people to do. Okay. And did the, um, so I know you, you started your, we need more heroes podcast prior to your bike tours, 2017, I think you said, um, yeah. What prompted that? To to start, we need more heroes. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually just wanted to find out how these people were getting paid to do things that I was paying to do. Um, I was already feeling a bit of the, like being stuck in the grind of finance and, uh, wanted, I wanted life to be more exciting. Like I was just feeling a bit like I was this tiny cog in a huge wheel, which I really was, you know, a company with whatever, 40,000 people in. Um, it was it, in, in a giant city with 10 million people. 
um, you don't fear, you, you do just get onto this kind of autopilot. And yeah. then I started to find out about the London adventure scene and um, people were doing these like midweek campouts. And uh, and I and that's where actually where I met Adam on a, on a midweek campout, Adam Hugill. And we were both like, this is amazing. These people are getting paid to go and do fun stuff. Mm-hmm. How are they doing this? So uh, I... I said i was actually at a yes tribe event which is this guy dave cornthwaite who's um yeah pretty big in the in the like london adventure scene and he said if anybody's got something that they want to commit to that they've been wanting to do for a while but they haven't done come up and stat and come and talk on the microphone and commit to it in front of 400 people and then and then you'll have to do it and uh and i just remember saying to the guy next i was like i really want to start a podcast and it was I, I think I was quite early to the podcast train because now they're massive and really, really popular. But yeah. in when I, I think it was 2016. Yeah. It was that there are a few around, but no, no real mega ones. Um, I was listening to the Joe Rogan podcast when there was like a few thousand people listening and there, and it was it's a very, very different experience. And I thought I, there wasn't, I don't think there was really a general one for adventure. Um, or at least there was very few. So, uh, and kind of connecting it to a normal life, ha- not just these people are doing amazing things, mm-hmm. but like how how do we as a normal person who has a normal job um, get to make life more exciting and adventurous and make it accessible? So it was really to scratch my own itch. Yeah. And then I started doing it and then, yeah, people people enjoyed it. And then it turned out to just be, as as you know, a really good way to connect with awesome people like having Conrad Anker, one of my heroes on, um, on we need more heroes, uh, was amazing in Montana. We just cycled into his hometown and I was at a house party with somebody. We were talking about the film Meru and he said, Oh, you know, the guy Conrad, he's from this town. You should have him on your podcast. And this is when not many people had listened or subscribed. It was still like in the few thousands. And I was like, I think he's a bit big fry for that. But I sent him a message and he said, I don't normally do media, but I'm interested in your bike trip. So just come around to my house and we can have a chat. Oh, that's wild. So yeah, went around to his house and, you know, um, I did a, did a podcast and, uh, and have kind of stayed in touch since. And I saw him when he came over to Birmingham and like that kind of thing is just something that you'd never get if you didn't have a podcast. If I was just like, Hey, Conrad, can I just come around to your house? I'm this random guy, George. Whereas if you've got a reason to, it kind of gives you a chance to connect with uh, very interesting and vibrant yeah. people. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty awesome how the, the people you meet through the podcast. And it's one thing I absolutely love about it is just, you know, it just grows and people reach out and you're like, oh, wow. And, you know, you, you become friends with these people you never thought you would ever hear of, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it's a really good, a really good movement generally. And and especially for like long form stuff as well. You know, everybody was saying that, yeah, we we all have social media attention spans and it's less than a goldfish now and nobody will listen to long form content. And then uh, a few pioneers kind of came in and just said, no, I, a proper conversation should be an, anything between an hour and three hours. And you should be diving deep into an issues and really yeah. like, kind of getting to the, getting into the weeds, not just always superficially covering things like they do on breakfast TV, where they got three minutes to talk about climate change and um, instead like really go deep into something. And I think that's one of the things that I get from podcasts and really enjoy digging out with the guests. And I think that's why a lot of people like that kind of thing, because there's not many 
not, people can can read, uh, but other than that, a long form accessible form of media, podcast is uh, is an awesome way to go. Yeah, absolutely. I've had people like. I've had a few friends and stuff say, oh, you should really limit your episodes like 45 minutes to an hour and this and that. And I'm like, no, it's going to be what it is. I, mm. I don't want to rush a conversation. You know, there's too much, too much great stuff. And if somebody's not really into bike touring, they don't want to listen to it. So be it. You know, the, the people that yeah. I know that bike tour and stuff, they're like, Hey man, one thing I love about podcasts is it's perfect. Cause when you're bike touring, what else do you have to do? You know, you're, if you're, you want to disengage from, the environment around you for a bit, you put on a podcast and you listen, you know, you find out about other, other people up the road or in another country that you're going to be reaching or whatever. It's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I got, I got through a lot of podcasts whilst we're on our, or whilst we're on a bike tour and just loved it. It's uh it's such a cool medium. What, mm-hmm. what have you got? Have you got any plans for the podcast? Are you just um, looking to keep going, recording more, or are you thinking about morphing it? Um, yeah, there's um, there's always plans. Um, trying mm. to find the time as a full time teacher and do that is it's hard as well. Um, yeah, so I'm pretty limited. And now we have a we bought a house in April, so we're having two and a oh, half acres cool. and chickens and you know wood to split because we have a wood stoves in the house and garage as well for heat. Uh, I mean, we oh, do have amazing. heating system, but I, I want to use wood as much as possible. And, um, yeah. so splitting and cutting wood and it's been keeping me busy, you know, so it's been hard to, to produce since the summer's finished. I've only got one episode posted and I've got a few others to, to get up edited and make it happen. It's just, uh, slowly pushing them out. There's, there's a lot to it. A lot that I think it can seem like it's just turn the, turn the microphone on and record for a couple of hours, but even just arranging, finding the guests, arranging, Mm -hmm. um, researching, then actually recording. And then you've got to do the post and then the, the uh, updating the website and then telling people about it. It takes takes a long time. And I used um, to, I used to do a full on blog. I like every episode had its full blog post, a write up of what we talked about and like the person and this and that. Cause some wow. people don't like to listen to podcasts and they'd rather read like my mother or my aunt or maybe others out there. And yeah, it just got to the point where it's too much time. I just, I just, you know, it's an extra, even if say an, an extra hour and a half of work that adds up really quickly in a week, you know, like it's just, mm. it's just so much going on that to find that extra hour and a half, you're really I mean, yeah, you can always cut out an hour at Netflix or something, but then, you know, you got to spend some time with your significant other and maybe that's chilling out watching TV or chatting, but you got to, you know, time is limited. Yeah. Is your partner into cycle touring? We've done a a small tour together um, last year. Uh, She didn't come this year for this one because, well, she was working off from home, but also I, I had a different mission. I was... I was trying to push big days, big goals. Um, it wasn't just your normal bike tour. So it was meant to be a long, hard, hard month. Um, but yeah, so she's, she's down for some adventures. So that's good. Yeah. Very cool. What have been How some of the, exper- sorry, go oh, ahead. Sorry. Who's interviewing you here? Uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Uh, no, please, please go ahead. <laughs> um, I was going to ask though, what have been some of the challenges of getting your, your company up and running? Because it's a big risk, Ooh. right? To go from like you could go back to finance and have a full time job and benefits mm. and whatnot to saying, I'm going to start a company that might not make money for a while, you know? Oh, yeah. I think I've probably started a tra- travel company at the worst time in history, literally. Like, um, I don't think you could have picked a worse time to try and 
sell people adventure holiday trips like corona has just absolutely crushed everything so fortunately i'm doing the the media side too um and so there's always more content to write and uh and, and the podcast um but you know that that stuff takes a lot of time um and it was a huge amount of work to uh, form all the relationships with the guides, design itineraries, um, you know, build the website, uh, just everything that goes along with it. And then self, self-learning, um, a lot about SEO and marketing, mm-hmm. like it takes a long, 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 long time. Um, so, and I wanted to do everything myself first as so that I really knew the ins and outs of everything. And then I could hire people and have actually be able to contribute or to manage effectively um because it was just so out of my zone of expertise Mm -hmm. you know like a a far cry from business and finance to uh learning about you know uh how backlinks work and um and and all all that good stuff and so it yeah it took a long time but i enjoy it i'm just like that kind of person hyper curious i guess if you have a podcast you probably are too like just always interested in almost everything um, but, uh, but this, it, it can mean that it's very slow for you to, to make progress if you're doing everything. So I just kind of took the long-term approach and, uh, it, it was, it was great before kind of in the summer, I launched all the trips about four weeks before lockdown, something like that had a lot of people coming to the site and a lot of people booking on and it was great. And then, uh, and then, yeah, lockdown down came um some people still went on their trips a lot of people cancelled or postponed yeah and then the first wave kind of uh, abated and then i put the last of my savings into um some more google ads and fa- sorry facebook ads like social media ads had loads of people coming back to the site it was great loads of inquiries and then the second wave happened and that kind of wiped everything off the ah. the face of the earth again. So it it has been really, really hard. Everybody's in the same boat. Um, nobody's really booking adventures now. Mm-hmm. Some people are booking for next year. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's, it's just a very tough time. So in terms of like making it that useful for people, I think if I was to do it again, I, I was making money. I also worked as a professional gambler for a while and a few other bits and bobs like freelancing. So I had enough money to keep me going. But it was, I think if somebody wants a less stressful way of doing it, there are two kind of approaches. One is burn your boats, like uh, burn your ships, like get there, burn mm-hmm. your ships, say, I have to make this work. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, I'm stuffed. I'm all in. And that yeah, exactly. Good- yeah, and that's good for making you commit. But if you haven't got a problem with commitment, you probably don't need to do that. Uh, if you really want, love what you're doing enough and you believe that it's important, if it's more than just making money, then you're probably going to do it anyway. But that approach is so much more stressful because you see your money running out and you don't have a plan B. Whereas if you can keep your day job but then work on a project on the side on the weekends and in the evenings and then scale it up to a point where it can make you enough money to live and then jump ship. I think that's probably the advice that I would give to a lot of people. That's always what I've done in the past with other startups and other projects that Mm -hmm. I've worked on. And it moves a lot slower because you just don't have the time, but it's a far less stressful journey. So um, yeah, I I think that's probably my my thoughts looking back at it uh there's there's strengths and weaknesses to both but if you get particularly stressed it's not a good way to 
burn your ships. Yeah, um, exactly. It's, it's very hard to make to make a business work. Most businesses fail, and you can have something like Corona. Even though the travel industry had amazing dynamics going for it, it was growing year over year. Adventure was the fastest growing part of it. Um, had some good connections and lots of great trips that people wanted. But then you can get just blindsided by uh, something completely unforeseeable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, it's such such an interesting year to to have gone through the adventure you've been doing. I mean, it's a, it's intense. Uh, where can people find out more about you and uh, if they want to follow? Uh, you? Yeah, so um, call to adventure. So it's called toadventure.uk is the be- is the hub. That's where everything lives. So all the doc, uh, all the articles, gear reviews, um, interviews, pe- thought thought leadership stuff on green issues, how to be a, a more carbon friendly adventurer and things that you can get involved in. So all the content lives there mm-hmm. uh, as well as the podcast. Um, and yeah, all the adventures are on there too. So there's a bit, yeah, a bit of everything, some ski touring, uh, up paddle boarding, pretty, yeah, pretty much anything. If you're, if you're into the outdoors adventure, most of it's there. So, um, yeah, that's probably the best place and call to adventure official on Instagram um and yeah that's uh that that should give people enough if they sign up to the newsletter then they get a booking priority and some discounts and we do some giveaways for trips so um yeah definitely worth signing up to that as well as our best content posted out so yeah that's where to find us perfect um i'll definitely put some links and um george it's been really sweet um really interesting to hear about your story your adventure and uh how everything has gone for you since then Thanks so much for having me, Chris. I've really enjoyed it. It's uh, yeah, it's been great to chat. It, it's certainly fun to be on the other side and to think back and relive great times on the yeah. road and good adventures, the challenging times, the good times. So uh, yeah, it was really good to connect and uh, certainly have to have you on Call to Adventure at some point. And that would I'll be very cool. Get my chance yeah. to interview you. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> um, amazing how fast two hours go by, huh? Yeah, just flies by. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, thanks. Bye bye. Hey everyone, before we end this podcast, I'd like to tell you about some of Bike Tour Adventure's other amazing partners. I'm very proud to be supported by Brockton Cyclery, a Toronto-based bike shop dedicated to bike touring and bikepacking. Carrying many of the top bike touring and bikepacking brands, I can honestly say that they have helped me to build the most durable and fast bikepacking bike possible. We're also supported by Race Day Fuel. Their mission is to ensure that you consume the very best and appropriate food and beverage for the task at hand. Working with top brands such as Scratch, Noon, and Untapped, they have all your nutrition needs taken care of. For discount codes, check out the show notes or go to the Bike Tour Adventures website. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form you can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes bikepacking routes throughout canada blog posts videos and touring tips lastly i'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast if you are enjoying the show and like what i'm doing you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com bikepackadventures And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. 
This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.